Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by three editors of the new book from Rutledge Press, The Wollstonecraftian Mind. This is an amazing and gorgeous book um, that is part of Rutledge's series, The Philosophical Minds. Um, but today I'm joined by Sandrine Berges, Eileen Hunt Boding, and Alan Coffey. And I'd like to welcome all three of them to the program and ask them to each tell us a little bit about themselves and how they came to this project. And I believe we're going to start with Sandrine. Uh, thanks, Lily, for inviting us to talk about this. Um, so I'm Sandrine Berges, and I teach philosophy at Dokent University, which is in Turkey. Um, I've been working on Wollstonecraft not for that long, for about 10 years. And early on in my Wollstonecraft career, I met Alan, I think that was nine years ago, in a conference in Lund. And we've been working together since. Um, and just when we did, so I'm going to tell you how we came to, to work on that project. Just when um, we'd, we were finishing one project, a volume on Wollstonecraft social and political philosophy for OUP, I got a message from uh, Rebecca from, from Routledge saying, we've got this new series and I'd really like to have a woman on it, The Philosophical Minds, and I think Wollstonecraft would be great. Would you be interested in working on it, perhaps with someone else? So I asked Alan, and he said, yep, that's, uh, that sounds like a great project. And it was a big project, so we wanted a third person. And we both worked before with Eileen, and we really liked her, and her background was really complimentary to us as well. So we asked her, and she said yes, and then and there you go. It's been a, it's been a great collaboration, not just a book, but also we've done some um, mini-conferences. We've created a Wollstonecraft Society, so, and, and of course we're all friends as well. So that, that's my story. Alan? Okay, yes. Um, uh, yes, well, I'm Alan Coffey, as, as Sandrine said. Um, I teach Global Ethics and Human Values at King's College in London. Um, and, and like Sandrine, I hadn't been working on Wollstonecraft uh, for very long. Um, I, I came at... Um, I'm a political philosopher, really. So I came at the, the subject um, as a contemporary political philosopher and I work in sort of Republican theory which is a particular kind of uh, social and political uh, theory based around an idea of freedom and it was just a, a chance uh, conversation because I, I, I was sort of unsatisfied with the contemporary way that things were done and um, the husband of my my then uh, or previous uh, PhD supervisor Quentin Skinner is an expert on Republican theory and he just mentioned in passing, he just said, oh, by the way, uh, you might find Wollstonecraft quite interesting. She, she mentions uh, the language of, of slavery and domination, which is a key theme for Republicans. Um, and then he, he said no more about it. No one had really um, taken that idea particularly seriously. Um, but when I had a look at it, I'm not saying I sort of pioneered this. There are many other people, um, Lena Haldanius, one of our sort of uh, collaborators as well, had, had already done quite a lot on this. Um, but in terms of Republicans themselves, no one really took Wollstonecraft seriously as a, as a contemporary um, political theorist in her own right, outside of um, gender studies, uh, history of early feminism and, and so on. And this was just a revelation to me this, that, that here was someone working on exactly the, the kind of questions that I was doing now in a contemporary context that I've barely heard of, uh, certainly not in this context. Um, 
And uh, Lena Haldenius uh, organised a conference, as Sandrine said, in, in Lund, in Sweden. Um, and that's where we all met. And um, out of that conference, there was a, a follow-up at uh, Birkbeck in London. And that was where we had the idea for just a small volume on uh, the social and political philosophy of, of Mary Wollstonecraft. Um, just to, to push the ideas, we've got you know, sort of experts from different uh, fields of Wollstonecraft scholarship, just to sort of push the idea that she's a, a serious philosopher, political theorist in her own right, which um, which now is, is widely accepted. But, but at the time, um, well, I'm going to say at the time this, this seemed quite unusual. That's because that was the way it um, appeared to us. The more we probe, the more we find out that in, in, in Germany there were people working on this in the 90s and, and, and uh, other sort of uh, non-Anglophone countries that people going back to the 80s and 70s. So, so nothing, I think, is entirely new. But, but, but certainly in the circles that we mixed in, this seemed quite um, an unusual thing. As I say, that was a small volume, and Eileen had, had contributed a, a wonderful uh, article on on uh, children's uh, rights uh, into that book. So um, it, it seemed like the obvious when 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 Sandrine had had uh, been approached about setting this one up, it just seemed the obvious uh, choice of, of someone. Um, and plus, Eileen knows so many more people than we do as well. It's just a forty chapter book, and um, I think without her contacts and networks, we we would have been stumped. I think I'll hand over to, to Eileen at that point. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you. Uh, yes, the legacies chapter or the interlocutors chapter and the philosophy uh, section of this book are uh, two of my favorites. Uh, I think what the interlocutors section accomplishes is to show that Wollstonecraft pioneered a uh, innovative style of doing philosophy in that she was interested in engaging fellow political thinkers, especially those from the 18th century, in a critical dialogue about key terms and ideas in political thought that hadn't previously been engaged from what today we'd call a feminist perspective. And so she engaged in a critical philosophical dialogue with thinkers like Rousseau, and Burke and Immanuel Kant uh, in a way that generated an entirely new style of doing feminist political theory. Um, and this is why to the present day, we often look back upon Wollstonecraft as the beginning of modern feminist political thought. And this style of doing philosophy influenced later thinkers, especially those who were concerned with questions of women's rights and women's subjugation under patriarchy. And the interlocutor section in particular, and also the Wollstonecraftian philosophy section after it, chart how Wollstonecraft uh, was a uh, philosophical, literary, and political source for some of the leading uh, theorists of women's rights and feminism in the modern tradition. Uh, and we trace that out from Catherine McCauley all the way to, to Simone de, de Beauvoir. Um, uh, Lori Marceau, a political theorist who has written an excellent uh, recent book on Simone de, de Beauvoir's political thought, did the chapter uh, on de Beauvoir for this volume. And she did a nice job showing the ways that um, even though de Beauvoir only references uh, Wollstonecraft, I believe uh, just briefly twice in The Second Sex, um, 
the, the philosophical engagement is much deeper than that seemingly superficial reference to her as part of a, an early uh, list of, of women who advocated for, for um, equal rights for the sexes. Um, du Beauvoir, in fact, can be read, uh, Marzo argues, as engaging not only Wollstonecraft's ideas about womanhood, but also her daughter, Mary Shelley, um, the author of Frankenstein, uh, her conceptions of womanhood and monstrosity and otherness um, that come out in um, uh, the greatest uh, feminist Gothic novel of the 19th century. This is, I mean, this is an amazing book. And, and as you are all talking about it in terms of coming at it from um, different, to some degree, slightly different disciplinary perspectives um, and also training and exposure to Wollstonecraft before we get into the book itself. Um, and I would like to go through the sections of the book. I would love for you to talk about, as you've sort of started to discuss, Wollstonecraft as a political theorist, as a philosopher, which is really what the book is doing in terms of getting at her work and the people with whom she interacted and also the the sort of legacy of her work. But you, you, you've mentioned this a couple of times, and so for listeners to talk about the fact that she needed to be, quote, recovered. Um, and Eileen, you just, you just noted that at, her t- at the time of her initial writing, she was considered to be a political theorist. Um, but to some degree, what happened? Um, and, and so, Alan, you had mentioned that she, there were a lot of people in Europe non-Anglophone countries doing work on her. So I'd love for you each to talk a little bit about um, where her thinking sort of fits within our understanding of political theory in particular, philosophy in general. Um, I I think really this is a question um, for both Alan, who's done a lot of work on republicanism, and for Eileen, who's uh, the real political theorist here, uh, I just want to say that in terms of recovery, what Alan said earlier, is it's quite true that in philosophy it was very difficult to find anyone working on Wollstonecraft, um, at least in the UK when I was where I was when I was studying, and that she was considered. Uh, well, sometimes you could find her works in political theory sections of libraries and bookshops, but once I went to Oxford and asked in uh, the, the main bookshop there, I can't remember what it's called, Blackwell perhaps, as from where Wollstonecraft was, where I could find her, and they said, uh, I think you can find her book in the travel section. Uh, that, that, was, that was in 2011, I think. So there's been a lot of change. I mean, a lot of recovery has been happening, and now you can actually buy philosophy books on Wollstonecraft and find them in philosophy section. But as I said, I think Alan and Eileen have probably more to say, so I'll pass this on to Alan. Um, yes, I, I'm not, I think I'm going to pass a lot of that over to Eileen. I think we might go around in, in, in circles a little on that. But I can say what, uh, how it appears to me from the perspective I take. Um, and, and as you say, um, Wollstonecraft was uh, prominent, certainly in her time, uh, perhaps notorious, certainly controversial. Um, she she wrote before she wrote the, the vindication of the rights of uh, woman that, uh, that that we all celebrate and, and and know. She'd written a very sort of high profile uh, vindication of the rights of men uh, in answer to Edmund Burke. So this was um, this was an intervention in a in a big debate. Um, Burke himself was writing about the French Revolution. 
in very critical terms. Um, and he had particularly singled out, or the, the catalyst for what, what he wrote was um, uh, a sermon given by uh, Richard Price, a prominent uh, dissenting minister, a very fine philosopher, also now largely uh, forgotten as, as, as it happens. Um, and uh, he, he, he attacked him in, in, in very sort of scathing terms. Um, so Wilson Craft, was, she was the first to, to reply. Um, I think she gets a little bit, you know, too much credit uh, for that. She was the first to reply, and it was remarkably quick in the time she'd written. Um, the second to reply was Catherine McCauley, wrote an equally uh, fine uh, response, and it really was only a few weeks later. Um, people seem to focus on her being the first. But, but nevertheless, I mean, she was ahead of Thomas Paine and, and all this. So she, she, she sort of announced herself in, in very prominent uh, terms, and um, she, was, she was gathering... Uh, uh, her skills and, and, and reputation as she, she reviewed for a, a sort of intellectual magazine at the time and she was reading very widely, uh, writing very forthright uh, reviews. I think as Eileen uh, will, will point out, I mean, her, her, her writing was, was received in, in far-flung um, parts of the world. So she had a reputation. I wouldn't say she was, you know, a, a superstar, but she certainly had a, a reputation. Now, the reason why she's been forgotten by the discipline, I think, has... Um, has a number of strands to it. And, and um, I don't think they're all to do with sexism. Uh, a lot of them are. Uh, the way we can conceive our, our sort of canon of who, who we go to and who we don't is, is uh, was constructed, I think, in, in this much more in the 19th, 20th century. People have lost uh, their moorings of, of who uh, had been influential in the time and we're now looking back and, and picking out the, the key male figures. So there's, there's clear sexism there, but, but there was another reason I think she was uh, forgotten, certainly as a political theorist, maybe not, not, not as a feminist, and that was because she was so radical. So the 1790s, this was the French Revolution time, for, um, and uh, Wollstonecraft uh, was, was, was sort of in favour. She was a, very much a revolutionary, albeit of a sort of moderate kind. Um, and revolutionary radical ideas uh, became very unpopular. This was, this was the 1790s. This was uh, the, the, the chaos and terror in France. And we had the, the Napoleonic sort of uh, wars. And so Britain became very reactionary. Um, Price was another um, victim of this. So it wasn't just, uh, Priest, uh, Joseph Priestley was another one. So it wasn't just, and these are big figures in America, um, but, but, but forgotten, certainly in England. Uh, Catherine McCauley, another. So in terms of her contribution to, to the, um, the discipline of political philosophy, I think it was really that she had not been rediscovered by by that audience when later canons were were developed, and even when it came to uh, the seventies and eighties, and feminist scholars, political theorists were were sort of pioneering the the recovery. There was another problem, which was that in order to understand Wollstonecraft fully. You can't just come to her text as if it was written today. It, it, you, you have to understand uh, the time and you have to sort of appreciate the frameworks that she's using. And in the 70s and 80s and even 90s, she was considered to be a, a liberal theorist. This was the sort of main um, philosophical, political tradition that, that, that we understood as, as uh, being present at that time. And so we read her back as a, as a liberal um, and that coloured a lot of feminists against her because this was a time when liberal theory was being uh, attacked for its patriarchy and its sort of gender biases uh, by feminists. And she seemed to be an inadequate liberal and an inadequate feminism. So this, this, this caused some problems in, in how to understand her. 
It was only, I think, a little bit later when modern contemporary political theorists began to understand this Republican idea that I've mentioned a couple of times, which is a um, a particular kind of idea that, that was very, very prominent in, in Wollstonecraft's time. It was, it was used in the, the, the founding documents and, and the revolution of, of, of America and in, in France. And this idea of a, of a free citizen in a free state amongst other sort of free citizens, not ruled by a king, not ruled arbitrarily by uh, the whim of a, of, a, of a despotic master, but a self-governing community of equals. And once you start to see Wollstonecraft as writing in that genre, a lot of her, her distinctive uh, philosophical contribution, not just her forthright feminism, but actually quite subtle analysis about the way that uh, gender norms can distort public reason and, and lead to exclusion in, in, in very sort of subtle ways, that all became much clearer. So I think it's only been quite recently that contemporary thinkers have been in a position fully to understand, or at least to, to, to approach her work, um, in, in in more favourable ways, and so she's very rapidly taken on a, a, a prominence now in that in that particular field, Republican political theory, which is itself growing as a, as, a, as a political ideal. So it's just one narrow um, area of uh, political philosophy, but it's a very concrete and discrete one, and it's given her a platform in order to be appreciated more more widely. My own perspective is that. Without the two of you, this book never would have happened because of your networks, your extensive networks in philosophy in particular, which has both of you pointed out, have really been kind of behind the curve in recovery of Wollstonecraft uh, for ethics and political philosophy. Uh, political science, interestingly, maybe for the first time, was ahead of the curve because uh, one of the leading scholars of uh, women in politics and um, the history of political thought in our discipline, Virginia Sapiro, who contributed to the Wollstonecraftian mind, a wonderful new chapter on Wollstonecraft's conception of virtue. Sapiro had published one of the leading works on Wollstonecraft back in 1992, um, A Vindication of Political Virtue, The Political Theory of Mary Wollstonecraft. And uh, and so in political science, interestingly, a field that's not exactly known for being particularly friendly to questions of gender and women and feminism, actually led the way in part because there were pioneering scholars like Sapiro way back in the 1980s and, and, and early 90s who were who were um, kind of pushing the envelope and, and getting Wollstonecraft into the canon again. Uh, because as we know, Wollstonecraft was basically famous in her own time in the 1790s, as soon as she published um, her early works. And so our task has been to get her back where she originally was um, very early in her career, a very well-known, high-profile uh, uh, political theorist and um, uh, advocate of women's rights. Um, the question of how I got back to Wollstonecraft, how I, how I arrived at Wollstonecraft and the study of Wollstonecraft uh, goes back to my uh, time as a uh, student uh, in the 1990s at Cambridge and Yale. I um, was at uh, Cambridge for two years after college, and I had the opportunity to uh, take tutorials and uh, attend lectures with Silvana Tomaselli, one of the leading Wollstonecraft scholars in the world, who's edited the Cambridge edition of Wollstonecraft's Two Vindications, uh, a very important text in our field. Um, and uh, and then I went to Yale and I was able to write my dissertation on Wollstonecraft, Burke and Rousseau's theories of the egalitarian transformation of the family during their time. And that became my first book published by SUNY Press in 2006. And since then, I've 
published a series of other books that are on Wollstonecraft um, and, uh, and including uh, the Yale edition of her Vindication of the Rights of Women, which came out in 2014. Uh, I came to this project uh, uh, entirely because of the generosity of Sandrine and Alan and, and their reaching out to me as a scholar in political science and asking me to be part of this first philosophical commission on Mary Wollstonecraft's thought. I wanted to ask um, the two of you then to sort of take take us through a little bit of the structure of the book itself, which again sort of not only is about um, Mary Wollstonecraft as a theorist, but also has a number of other dynamics to it in terms of thinking about her work, but also the people with whom she was um, interacting and responding to. Um, and so in terms of the layout of the book, I believe it has five sections. Um, and, and they, you know, they sort of go through Mary Wollstonecraft's, her background, um, her major works, her interlocutors, her own philosophy, and of course the, the legacy that she left. Um, so I would love for one of you to sort of start us out a little bit with regard to her background, which I understand also from my reading of this book was interesting in terms of her education. Yes. So. Thank you. I, I was um, mostly responsible for the, the background section. Uh, so first, generally, about the, the sections that we've got, we had a, a model to work with, or a couple of models. We had the Rousseauian mind and the Kantian mind. And so we used that to try and decide how to, to break things down. But at the same time, with the understanding that Wollstonecraft was not the same kind of philosopher as Rousseau. Uh, she was a uh, she didn't have access to the same books, for instance, and or to the same kind of education. And that's something that's really reflected in, in the background section because we had to make some, some hard choices about what to include and what not to include. And one thing that we went um, back and forth on quite a lot, in particular, was uh, the missing first chapter. There's nothing there about Plato and Aristotle. Um, so the reason we went back and forth on that and um, it, might, it might seem odd that I'm talking about a non-existent chapter here but I think, I think it's quite an important non-existent chapter and the reason it doesn't exist is it's also quite important um, is that well she's we thought there ought to be one probably because we, we do think that some of what she says is influenced by both Plato and Aristotle uh, but the problem is that um, we don't think she'd read very much Plato or Aristotle, and it's kind of hard to be influenced by someone you haven't read. So she knew people who had, like, for instance, Price, was a, he was a, a Platonist, so he knew Plato. She talked with him. She would have heard about it, but most of the translations were done the year after her death. Uh, so that, that is a little bit odd to think um, of Plato as a background to her thinking, but still it is a bit. So, so we move, we moved on to other, to later philosophers. And especially we've got two chapters on early women, early modern women philosophers and Renaissance, um, women philosophers, because we wanted to see how she fitted in that tradition. Because it's quite important when we talk about women philosophers or women political theorists in history that we don't always say, Oh, look, she's the first one. 
no one's ever thought about these things before. She's the only woman in her time to have been doing this kind of work. And we wanted to say, well, that's not the case. You know, there, there's a tradition of women talking about political theory. And so we're, we're talking about them here in, uh, in these chapters. And the other challenge we had um, in the background section was to showcase the right kind of um, uh, social and political background, which was really, really important for her. So there was, you know, the French Revolution, for instance, and the Enlightenment period. And, and we had to make sure that this came across to the reader as something that helped shape her thought, but also something that we need to know a little bit about in order to understand what she's talking about. So in particular, her republicanism was very much informed by what was going on in the French Revolution. And then, so it was it was a matter of striking the right balance, not too much history, especially as it's not... Um, uh, as many people don't really know the history of that period, and I think that's, that's a problem with the, the political thought and the philosophy of that period as well, it's a bit too late to be early modern and it's a bit too early to be 19th century. And, and so it kind of gets missed out. People don't really know what's going on there, so we have to make some, we have to make some choices and try to include the right kind of things, and I hope we succeeded. Um, and... Alan, do you want to add something about this section? Well, I think there's possibly the rational dissenters, um, which is tied in with her republicanism. So her republican ideals, um, they draw from the period, they draw from the American Revolution, they draw from um, an, a number of sources, Rousseau uh, as well. But one particular source was the, the rational dissenters, these nonconformist Presbyterian sort of uh, ministers, who were um, very much marginalised um, and, and sort of persecuted in, in, in Britain. They didn't have full civil rights. They couldn't. They couldn't hold uh, office. They could. They, they, were, they were foreclosed certain sort of professions. Uh, they would be excluded from the university system, for example. So, so they were very much outsiders, um, and they were normally champions of, of liberty in, in, in all its forms. Uh, so they they. They championed the, the the American Revolution. I think very famously, Price was a was a, was a big sort of influence there. Joseph Priestley as well. Um, um, but they bring their their religious views um, very much into their work. Uh, they supported abolition as well um, and early early feminism. Although I think that took a while to get going and, and it was people like Wollstonecraft, uh, Macaulay, Anna Barbold, a few of these sort of pushed it in, in the UK and, and or in, in England um, and it would be the same in America and, and, and France, other uh, other women would be pushing that. But it, but, but these, this, this combination of religion, which had a sort of millenarian sort, sort, sort of feel, they very much were looking forward to a utopia when um, uh, human beings would become rational and moral and virtuous um, and the old prejudices would fall away, um, and with it, despotic rule. Uh, and so they had a sort of, uh, a very much a sort of religious vision, but but a rationalistic one as well. And, and Wollstonecraft fits, I think, I think very soundly within that. Price was her her, her big mentor. Uh, that you, we see a break. I mean, I'm going to slightly talk now, I suppose, about the next section, which is which is her, her major works. But uh, alongside the vindication of the rights of women, she she she's written a lot. And those are, are not um, very well discussed. But there is a there is a um, a break, I think, between her her early work. She wrote uh, something on the education of daughters. She put together a, a female reader for for 
educating um, young girls and, 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 and various things. And we can see the, her early philosophy emerging in that. But really, there's a sharp break when she writes the Vindication of the Rights of Men um, and, and of Women. Um, and that coincides, um, is, is, as I think, quite clearly sort of influenced by her meeting with the, uh, the rational dissenters. So they're a big part of her, of her philosophy. Um, so that, that's just one, one extra um, chapter there. Um, shall I move on to the, uh, the major works? Yeah, I was going to ask you to sort of for the for you to both talk about the works themselves and how they help us to understand her as a thinker, um, the linking together of the work, as well as, you know, sort of what each work individually um, can speak to. Well, the the chapters then are the vindication of the rights of men. This was this uh, this early intervention against uh, against Burke, and that really is written in the context of the of the French Revolution. Um, but that is a um, very sort of political piece. It's a it's um, it it's written in 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 terms of uh, i mean it, it's a very good piece of political philosophy we can talk about rights we talk about liberty we talk about freedom and slavery um hierarchy the corruption of virtue um uh, these these kind of general political ideas come through very very clearly in that but it's a sketchy work very hurriedly written written uh, for a particular purpose then there's the vindication of the rights of women the the, the one book that, that that everyone's heard of where she puts to, puts out her case for uh women as equal citizens um and um, the the word rights is in the title it doesn't sort of overtly talk about rights but they're very much uh, part of the philosophical sort of uh, background of what she's talking about she's talking about e- equality uh, independence and independence means uh, you're a citizen of equal standing, equal protection under law, equal representation within the law. Uh, that's also an idea she started in, in the rights of men, but but uh, sort of pursues it, 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 in this book. So you've you've got rights, but you've also got this this kind of gendered perspective where she unpicks the the kind of background of, of, of patriarchy, how uh, effectively. Um, Gender uh, biases and the way we think skew our ability to uh, to reason and deliberate and understand women as as equal. So even if women had rights, they would be of no use to women. They would be unenforceable um, until we can uh, remake the gender relations between men and women. Because it's the social prejudices that are so much more powerful than the legal uh, exclusions themselves. The, the legal exclusions and the lack of rights are just manifestations of how women are actually conceived of. Uh, and we've got to attack that first. So this is this is sort of groundbreaking stuff. Um, she also wrote a couple of novels. She wrote a novel at the very start of her career uh, titled Mary um, and one uh, an unfinished novel, um, uh, Maria or Mariah, I think in the 18th century, but Maria um, or The Wrongs of Woman. And it takes on the themes in the uh, the rights of woman, um, uh, but sets them in a in a novelistic con- context. Of, uh, it, her thought has sort of moved on by then, but it very much is a, a sort of philosophical. It, it's um, I think if Eileen were here, she would she would um, announce this as I think she's just joining us now. But Eileen might announce this as the first um, philosophical feminist novel. Uh, I, I I am not a, an expert in this to to know. 
Um, but that, that's that's what I've heard other people say. So this is um this is an important book, uh, unfinished. There's a couple of endings. Uh, it's much discussed. Um, it brings to life a lot of what she says in the vindication of of the uh, of the rights of woman, uh, but sets it in a very stark and, and troubling context. Um, so they, they, these are her novels. Uh, again, until recently, they weren't widely discussed outside of um, English literature circles. So I think this was important. Um, and she has her educational works. There are these early works where she, she talks about uh, the education of girls in particular. She wrote some original stories, uh, as well as the, the other two, the female reader and, and uh, the thoughts on the education of daughters. Um, so that's really her main sort of corpus as a travel writer, which seems to be her, one of her main claims to fame. And I think I think and yet another first for Wollstonecraft is that in some context or in some way, um, her writings of an adventure that she went on um, uh, at, at the behest of her, her, her then uh, partner, common law husband, however we want to describe it, Gilbert Imlay, um, she went around uh, Scandinavia. Uh, from 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 Germany through uh, Norway, uh, Sweden, and De- Denmark and Sweden, um, and um, amongst other things, and that's a remarkable book. But remarkable, right? Amongst other things, I've read that it's the first of a certain genre of travel writing as as well. So she she she's chalking up a lot of uh, innovative firsts here. Um, uh, she wrote a a, a, a moral and uh, well a history of the, the French Revolution. Again, people say, well, as history itself, it's, it's a bit derivative, but it's, there's a lot of important philosophy in there. It's, it's actually a very, very detailed uh, and important work. Uh, and she wrote a lot of letters. So, um, so, so this, was, this is the uh, part two, the major works. Um, it looks like we don't have Eileen anymore. Um, the interlocutors, um, I think I'll pass back to, um, to Sandrine for interlocutors, but uh, one of the, the questions, Lily, that you asked is what surprised us um, and the extent... Um, of engagement that she had, um, not, not maybe not directly, but the, what she was drawing on, what followed her, who drew on her, um, as well as the depth and breadth of, of the, the, the debates that were going on, not just by Wollstonecraft itself, but, but, but women forming their, their own networks and um, in, in their own time. This was a revelation to me, and I think it's something uh, Sandrine speaks very well about, so I'll, I'll hand over. Sandrine, would you like to take us through some of this discussion? This is a really a centerpiece of the book in terms of thinking about um, Wollstonecraft's um, in, interlocutors as as you sort of craft this section. So if, if you would like to take up some of that discussion, that would be great. Yeah, yes, I'll get started. And then I see Eileen back so she can, um, she can come in as well. So this section was actually born out of two sections because, uh, as you may have noticed, a bunch of these people were uh, before Wollstonecraft and a bunch of them were quite a long time after Wollstonecraft, like uh, Simone de Beauvoir did not ever talk with Wollstonecraft, for instance, nor did Virginia Woolf. Um, But we wanted to give a sense not just of uh, the people who influenced her, the people she had actual exchanges with, but the people who went back and looked at her work or had her work in mind when they created their own. And then one, one example of that is, of course, Jane Austen. Uh, we, we have no real evidence that, that she read Wollstonecraft, 
Well, it, it seems very much, and I think Madeline, uh, Madeline Cronin, who does a chapter, chapter 17, makes a very good case for showing that there is a Wollstonecraftian influence in the works of Jane Austen. So that was uh, an important chapter. And, and then the same with uh, Harriet Taylor Mill, um, by Helen McCabe, there was definitely some, I mean, we, we knew she had a copy of Wollstonecraft's Vindication as Rights of Woman. Um, she doesn't mention it in her own works, but again, uh, it's very hard not to see the influence there. Um, the, the chapter I worked with most closely was the one on, on Rousseau um, by Christopher Brooke, um, and, and Rousseau's influence on Wollstonecraft is, is very well documented by Wollstonecraft herself. Uh, she writes about him in, in early letters when she starts to when she starts to um, to develop her own philosophy and writing. She writes to her sister about reading Emile and how influential that is. Uh, she reviewed Rousseau's um, Rousseau's work. She reviewed, I think, the the promenades of uh, the solitary dreamer. In for the for the analytical review, and she has a huge section on Rousseau in chapter five of the Vindication as a Rights of Woman. Um, now she she's got a love hate relationship with Rousseau, and then she she told um her new husband, uh, as Alan called him, and I think that's that's accurate actually. Gilbert Imlay she wrote to him saying that she was half in love with Rousseau. And the half that was in love was really um, admiring not only of his writing, but also his educational ideals, um, the ones that um, that meant that he left it up to children to educate themselves. There would be no impositions or strict rules. The children really had to go out really outside in nature and discover the world for themselves and everything else would follow. Um, according to Rousseau, and she really liked that, except that for Rousseau, of course, this only applied to little boys, and she wanted the same thing to apply to little girls. So chapter five of The Vindication of the Rights of Women, the section on Rousseau, is really arguing point by point against everything that Rousseau has ever said about women. Uh, and it is very systematic, and it is very satisfying, I think. Uh and maybe I want to pass this on to Eileen now. And and so I wanted to then take you, or ask you, um, the three of you, to talk about the the last two sections um, titled Philosophy and Legacies. And the legacy section, I was really intrigued um, to read through in part because of the sort of many different dynamics and discussions that are going on in terms of the the long shadow of of Wollstonecraft, but also I wanted to sort of have you talk a little bit about the section on philosophy, which is distinct from, of course, the works themselves. Um, so, Sandrine, if you'd like to start us. Okay. Yes. Uh, so the section on philosophy, what we wanted to do there. Um, would was to get philosophers to pick up particular philosophical themes or questions in Wollstonecraft and and, and I'm sure how she, she engaged with it and how you can engage with her as well. Um, so, for instance, um, Martina Reuter's Reason, Imagination and Passion. Um, so that, that that's really picking up three concepts or 
very important in 18th century philosophy, but also even in 17th century philosophy. Reason and passion are the, the two the two um, the two ways in which philosophers try to describe the human mind's engagement with the world. And the imagination is perhaps something that's a bit more specific to Wollstonecraft. Um, and I think uh, it's, it's important that so Martina brings that out really well, the way in which it's not just it's not just a debate between the reason on the one hand that's very cold and very sensible and the passions that uh, that that carry you to do, to do things that you might regret. It's also the imagination is a way of linking between the two and of using the passions in order to direct reason a little bit better. Um, and that that's really that's really fascinating. Uh, another one is the chapter on virtue by Virginia Sapiro. So we could not not ask. Virginia to do that chapter because she's written a book about it, a book that was really influential and and one of the early texts I think in uh, political theory and political philosophy to alert us to to the existence of Wollstonecraft as a thinker that we had to engage with. Um, and, and then there's a chapter on, on theology and religion as well, which I think it was really important to have because very often people think of Wollstonecraft because she was a, a Republican, because of her sympathies with the French Revolution, they think of her as an atheist. And and she definitely wasn't. Um, and this is to the point where I was actually asked to contribute to a volume on atheism, a chapter on Wollstonecraft. Um, I did, it, but I warned the editor, look, she was not an atheist. So I can write about, you know, which aspect of her thoughts led people to think she was an atheist, but she definitely wasn't. So we wanted to have this chapter in there for that reason. Um, maybe I can move on to Alan here. Um, yes, okay. So the, the having the section on philosophy itself, uh, I think it is important uh, for Wollstonecraft because so often we we, we package everything uh, about her in terms of what she says about women. And here uh, we get you know, we, you know, fine professional philosophers to examine different parts of her uh, thinking in terms of the key philosophical um, approaches, themes, subjects that, that you would expect to find in, in any uh, philosopher. So epistemology, this is, this is fundamental to um, how uh, philosophy is done, particularly in this time, what is our theory of knowledge, um, it, that, that's going to underpin everything we do. Uh, the same with her, her, her theology, which, which, which was pervasive, not only in her time, but in, in, in her thinking. Um, virtue was a, was a hugely uh, important uh, sort of moral and rational epistemological subject. So, so these, these things are, are very important in building her as a philosopher. Now, once we've done that, we turn to the question of her legacies. And, and again, this, the, the word legacies can be taken in, in, in various ways, because in, in one sense, she has a clear legacy as a, a pioneering feminist, and everyone has, has, has acknowledged her as this, um, and so her place in, in, in the sort of pantheon is, is uh, assured. But beyond the, the direct legacy that, that she's had, and that's, that's something which we can, we, we can um, look at in, in many ways. So Eileen's already mentioned uh, Shelley and, and Frankenstein. Well, she, Shelley's uh, debt to her mother is, 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 is very, very deep. Um, and in many ways, um, in, in, in Frankenstein, but some of her other novels, 
novels. She's, she's written uh, others that um, that also have very, very clear political, philosophical themes that I think are underexplored by uh, political philosophers. Uh, she, she wrote one about you know, the, the Italian Renaissance and Machiavelli's time, uh, Valperga. She wrote uh, an apocalyptic novel, uh, The Last Man. Again, these have these Republican themes coming through, and there's virtue and... Um, rights and, and all these kind of ideas. Um, and they're Wollstonecraftian, very, very much so, far more than they are Godwinian in, in, in my personal view, which her father was, was William Godwin. Um, so, so we can trace her legacy in, in many ways. But now that we're seeing her as a philosopher in her own right, there is so much potential now to apply her thought in, in new and novel ways um, into contemporary debates. And that's what I think uh, many of the chapters do very well in uh, in this legacy section. So uh, Elizabeth Fraser uh, writes on democracy. And democracy is somewhat anachronistic for, for Wollstonecraft. She doesn't use the word. Um, I think um, Elizabeth mentioned that she, she used the term only once, democratical, and that's in reply to Burke, who uses it as a, as a kind of slur term. That democracy was a, was a, it, it, at the time was often used uh, for chaos and mob rule and vulgarity. Um, Wollstonecraft takes a different view, and we can see the ingredients of what would become democracy in Wollstonecraft. She has an idea of representation, an idea of inclusivity, an idea of, um, of secure rights, the notion of what it is to be a citizen, um, a voice, a meaningful voice. In other words, um, making sure that background prejudices and patriarchy don't, don't skew the voice. Um, so you can unpick a proto-democratic sort of ideal from, from Wollstonecraft, but the way she does it is um, interesting and novel for contemporary democratic theorists. So she's another source to draw on, and she has a, you know, for, for, for those who are Wollstonecrafting experts, she has a, a, a way to speak to contemporary audiences beyond her, her, her usual sort of outlets, she can speak into debates on citizenship. So we had an excellent chapter from um, uh, Melanie White. Um, uh, we had a chapter on human rights. Um, and, and these are sort of subjects where human rights, you, 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 uh, other than Eileen's uh, wonderful work on this, you might not necessarily think of Wollstonecraft in, in terms of human rights. It's, 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 it's a different era. Um, but she has a lot to say about that. Um, and so her legacy can extend... Um, almost indefinitely, depending on the questions we now ask. Because once we have a grasp of her philosophy, we can now then um, speak into contemporary days, no less than if we were examining Mill or Rousseau or Kant. And, and, and it was interesting that um, uh, Sandrine mentioned Rousseau and Kant as, as the two uh, books that were coming out at the same time as, uh, as, as Wollstonecraft. We have there uh, a, a nice list of, of the canonical philosophers. Wollstonecraft, you know, Rousseau, Wollstonecraft, Kant in, 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 in that nice, nice order. But once she's got a place in that uh, scheme, then I think her legacy is, is, can expand. The, the, more, the more questions we have to ask about our contemporary debates, the more we can interrogate her and find inspiration and, and apply it in a current context. Um, I, think, I think it's time for Eileen to have a word. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I, I agree with Alan that the... Uh, potential for applying Wollstonecraft's visionary political theory to contemporary debates is vast. And 
And it's really our task now uh, to uh, to begin to apply these ideas. Um, one of my favorite chapters in the legacy section is by Lorna Bracewell, a feminist political theorist at Flagler College in the United States. She looks at Wollstonecraft through the lens of contemporary gender theory, uh, including Judith Butler's work. And uh, I think here we have uh, a pioneering new field in both feminist theory and Wollstonecraft studies. I think so much more work needs to be done on the way that Wollstonecraft was surprisingly aware of ideas that we now consider to be revolutionary and avant-garde, including conceptions of um, transgender identity. Uh, there's a there's a there's a well-known passage in Wollstonecraft's Vindication of the Rights of Women where she 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 sets forth a kind of thought experiment, you know, and she 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 says you know, uh, you know, perhaps there are some um, uh, women um, who actually have the souls of men inside their bodies. Um, and, uh, and she means it as a thought experiment. She doesn't mean it uh, literally. Uh, but this thought experiment philosophically, I think, anticipates some of the questions we're having today around what it means to be transgender. Um, and, uh, and I think that going forward, uh, I personally would love to see a younger generation of feminist, uh, and gender scholars within political theory and philosophy, uh, take up Wollstonecraft as an intriguing philosophical source for some of our contemporary debates. And, and so I wanted to then ask, um, the three of you, and I, I'd said this in our, our email exchange, um, what, I mean, you've talked a little bit about some of the things that are going on in terms of the work that contributed to this volume, but what was surprising to you either in your reading of Wollstonecraft as you were working on this project or to some degree, what was surprising to you when you got a chapter in and you said, oh my God, I'd never thought about thinking about that that way. Um, can you talk a little bit about the surprises in the research? This is a this is a big book. You you did a lot of work in terms of recruiting authors and and setting out the parameters of the work. I'm just curious as to what was surprising and intriguing as you were pulling the pieces together. Um, uh, well, I, I start uh, to me. What was what was what came to what came as a surprise was uh, the sheer breadth and depth of the existing scholarship on Wollstonecraft, because up till now I'd only really looked at um, works by philosophers, but Eileen especially introduced us to, to so many people who'd been working on Wollstonecraft, some of them for a very long time, like uh, Wendy Gunther Canada, for instance who'd been working with her in teaching, in uh, in developing theories, for instance, uh, the chapter on education in um, in, in the in Plant 2 um, by Susan Lair. She clearly has been working on educational theory using Wollstonecraft's work, and then that to me was amazing. Um, and the other thing that, that I found really surprising was how well we managed to get this done on time. Uh, That's very we, impressive. We managed to submit a huge manuscript um, on time, basically, and and that yeah, I was very impressed by us, and I'm quite surprised that we managed to pull this off. <laughs> yeah, I mean that actually on on that it's um, 
no mean feat. Um, I've contributed chapters to books that I wrote a year before we started this project, and we're still waiting for those to come out. So, so my thanks go to the contributors who, who were actually very good at getting things done and uh, turning it around. Um, yeah, I would echo uh, what Sandrine said about um, the the extent of Wollstonecraft studies that that perhaps uh, had been done in in pockets of of academia that we weren't aware of, and that's probably a reflection of our own parochialism and probably Anglo-centric parochialism as well. Um, but but another thing that, that, that struck me that I alluded to earlier was um, in some ways, Wollstonecraft is, is the tip of an iceberg. Um, that, that The depth that we're finding in, in her work is, is not, is, is exceptional, but it wasn't unique. There, that, there are other women uh, that have been less studied that are awaiting uh, a similar kind of uh, recovery and rehabilitation. Um, Catherine McCauley is one that, that was my own chapter for this book. So I spent some time looking at her, but she's in a similar position to Wollstonecraft, a huge reputation in her time, extensive network of interlocutors, uh, influence, um, entirely forgotten until, until really the, the early part of the century. Um, but but there are others, and in, in the French context, uh, Sandrine herself has written on um, uh, Alain de Gouge and, and and several others, Sophie de Grouchy, um, and there are many more that are also rich, also with with networks, also sort of ripe really to be rediscovered and and reintegrated into our contemporary uh, sort of understanding, not just of the period, not just of what of what uh, women uh, themselves have have contributed. But to the way we understand our, our, our disciplines and uh, um, our kind of uh, political discourses. So, um, yeah, that's exciting times, I think. Yes, there are so many things about this volume I found surprising. I suppose off the bat, what I found most surprising is when we organized a mini conference at um, the American Political Science Association in 2017 uh, titled Wallapalooza, I was really struck by the enthusiasm, the excitement in the room, it really, in many ways, I think I said then, even then, it was the highlight of my career as a political theorist who's been working on Wollstonecraft since my graduate school years, just to see people so engaged and interested in Wollstonecraft and her ongoing relevance for political theory, philosophy, and political science. Um, Beyond that, another aspect of the volume that, that, that struck me is that we received multiple pitches for um, some of the most important topics in contemporary political theory and philosophy. Um, we had people competing for the chance to write about Wollstonecraft and the family, <clears throat> to write about Wollstonecraft and religion, to write about Wollstonecraft and democracy, human rights, uh, to uh, write about Wollstonecraft and historical figures, um, such as John Stuart Mill uh, or Harriet Taylor. And so that was heartening to me because rather than seeing, um, uh, you know, just two or three people in the field of political science stepping up to the plate, you know, we've, we've mentioned Natalie Taylor, we've mentioned Wendy Gunther Canada, um, Virginia Sapiro, all political theorists who have been working on Wollstonecraft for quite some time uh, in political science, uh, as well as Daniel O'Neill, all of these uh, scholars contributed to our volume. Uh, but it was wonderful to see this array uh, of other scholars, uh, 38 and all, I believe, step up to the plate and, and, um, and try to look at Wollstonecraft on these key issues from, um, from new perspectives. Uh, and um, there's a, 
a lot of debate today whether um, schools of thought such as liberalism, um, democracy, uh, human rights still matter anymore. Are, you know, are we in an age of the death of democracy? Are we in the age of the death of liberalism? Are, 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 are human rights uh, antiquarian ideas um, often subverted uh, um, uh, and used um, in ways that are antithetical to their original um, conception? Uh, and it was so heartening to see a, a really a legion of, of scholars step up to the plate and say, Wollstonecraft conceived ideas um, such as republicanism, liberalism, democracy, and human rights in ways that still speak to uh, urgent concerns of the day. And and I did wanted to ask you about Wallapalooza a little bit, and also the establishment of the Mary Wollstonecraft Society, both of which seem to have come out of this this arrangement, this volume itself, but also your interactions with each other. Um, so just briefly, can you explain what Wallapalooza was um, in, in just a few more details than you, than you did, and also the establishment of a new sort of society? So I, I think uh, Wallapalooza was really Eileen's brainchild. So I'll, I'll, I'll let her explain it. I'll say a few words about the founding of the society this actually happened at our first Hulapalooza in um, in San Francisco. And we, we got together and we said, well, we need to have a society. And we said, well, let's have a society. Here we have, we have a society. And then there was a bit of to and fro with uh, an existing Wollstonecraft society uh, run in London by uh, by Bill Rollat and, and a few other people. Um, and... Um, and we decided to call it the Mary Wollstonecraft Philosophical Society. And so, so far we've got a website and we'd really like to recruit more people to help us manage that website and create a list, etc. And uh, we, we've started a collaboration with uh, another group in London, so with, with the Wollstonecraft Society that exists in London and another group as well that's run by Emma Cleary, um, and they, they host a uh, Wollstonecraft celebration, which is now once a year as well in London. And and uh, Eileen and Alan have been to the first one. I'm going to be at the second one. So this is all really exciting. We're reaching out into the world thanks thanks to thanks to this book, I think. But I think Eileen should talk about Wollapalooza. Okay, yes, I can, I can speak briefly about that. Uh, the, the term Wollapalooza is obviously... Uh, inspired by the rock concert Lollapalooza. But the term originated, uh, or my uh, appropriation of it originated uh, maybe 10 or 15 years ago. I was teaching Wollstonecraft to undergraduates, and I hosted a Wollstonecraft speaker series on campus. And uh, I think Lyndall Gordon's uh, excellent biography of Mary Wollstonecraft, um, Vindication, A Life of Mary Wollstonecraft had just come out. So it must have been around 2005 or 2006. And uh, Lyndall came to campus and gave a lecture. And uh, she she contributed the chapter on Virginia Woolf to our, to our volume, The Wollstonecraftian Mind. And Lyndall uh, gave such a wonderful lecture. It inspired um, a real enthusiasm in the students for recovering Wollstonecraft um, and that for, for, for integrating Wollstonecraftian ideas into their everyday life um, and the way they thought about things like gender and the family um, and uh, democratic participation. And I was really struck by that. And I wanted to come up with a term to convey to my students this enthusiasm they felt for, for Wollstonecraft. And, and 
I forget um, exactly when um, uh, uh, it got coined, but it was, uh, I think, during the visit of Lyndall Gordon to campus. And uh, before long, my students were um, spreading it about. Um, back then, it was before Facebook, so it didn't go viral in that sense. But nowadays, uh, thanks to the internet, um, uh, we're able to uh, spread the message of Wallapalooza all around the world. I love it. I love it. That's great. Um, I wanted to thank my three interlocutors today, um, Sandrine Berges, Eileen Hunt-Botting, and Alan Coffey for joining me to talk about The Wollstonecraftian Mind. This was published by Rutledge Press in 2019 and is part of the Rutledge Philosophical Minds series. And I assume, I'm going to ask you all, one can buy this at the Rutledge website as well as other places online. Yes, um, I would. I would love to put a pitch in for all the academics listening. Please order this for your university libraries. It's really a timeless resource. It's the first philosophical compendium on Mary Wollstonecraft. We've had many compendiums that look at Wollstonecraft from literary perspectives, historical perspectives, uh, but this is the first time we've had a true philosophy compendium on Wollstonecraft. So this is a major disciplinary. On scholarly importance. And no matter what your field is, whether you're a philosopher or not, I encourage scholars out there who care about Wollstonecraft and her legacies to order a copy for your library. And this is a gorgeous book. I, I can't recommend it enough. And it's really, really substantial and, and interesting and important. So I thank you, the three of you, for joining me today and for putting together this amazing book. Thank you. Thank you very much.